Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you and to learn from your word. We ask your guidance and leading as we go forward and, and just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, chapter 15, starting at verse 22. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors they are established. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in due season how good it is. The way of life is above the wise that he may depart from hell beneath. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the border of the widow. I'm going to stop there and look at some of these. All right, verse 22. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. And this is the, an idea that we started, I think, to talk about uh, last week. But without counsel, purposes are disappointed. Uh, they're afflicted. They're wretched. They go bad. And we see this a lot of time when, when you deal with somebody who thinks they have all the answers to everything and you watch them make all kinds of mistakes because they never will involve other people in their direction. And in this it says, in the multitude of counselors, they are established. And this is advice. It doesn't mean that you're going to pay attention to it, you know, go with the direction that people say, but it gives you input. And when I was managing, I used to do a lot of this. I would, get, I would get input every once in a while and say, okay, what do you all think about this? I usually had a way that I wanted to go, but I wanted to hear what others had said. And if it made sense, I went with what they said. If not, I went with where I had planned to go anyway. But it's very important that we listen to others. Anytime we try to do everything on our own, there's a lot of problems with it. Number one, I'm only as good as I can be. And there are people arrogant enough to know that think that they have all the answers and, and they don't need input and, and advice from others. And, and they will, maybe they will be successful. Maybe they are very smart. But if they don't take input from others, they can only be as smart, as productive as they are. And this is, this is what God is saying. You know, he doesn't say you're going to you know, go with, uh, with all these counselors, but you take the advice of others and you can learn. And, any, like, and we all know people who have, you know, think they know all the answers. And they're very irritating to be around because sometimes they're making very bad decisions and you can watch them make bad decisions, but they're not going to listen to anybody because they know everything. Uh, my grandmother was one of those who always had an opinion about everything, whether she knew anything about the topic or not. She had an input about everything. And it was kind of funny sometimes because she would argue with people who really knew something about the topic and because she had one little you know experience with it she knew everything about it and she'd be talking to somebody whose job was that arguing with them about what she knew <laughs> um, and I loved her she you know she was a very wonderful woman but she was very much that way she had the answers to everything if she knew if she'd had one experience she was the expert at it and that is a very dangerous place for any of us ever to get into, that we are the expert. This is one of the reasons I listen to as many speakers as I do, and I, and I study. I go into all, you know, the, all the, the Greek and the Hebrew and the different books, and every once in a while I'll look at a commentary to see, okay, what, is, what does somebody say about this, just to get some input on it. Because I don't want to be teaching just what I know. 
you all don't want me to teach what, just what I know. It would be very boring. You would run out very quickly. Uh, but I want to know. I want to know what others say about it. Not necessarily that I agree with everything they teach and say and, and, and say about it. It's just I want other inputs on it. And so I can say, okay, that was interesting, and, and be able to pursue what they, you know, what they have said. Uh, and it's very important for us to be able to look at this. Many counselors. A man has joy in the answer of his mouth, but and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. A man has joy with the answer of his mouth. We all probably have done this ourselves, or know people who just love to hear themselves speak. They just they joy in whatever they have to say. They 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 enjoy it. They enjoy just listening to themselves. And I know why you laughed, <laughs> but. We want to be able to say, you know, but it says a word spoken in due season, how good it is. And we also probably have had that experience when somebody has just said the right thing at the right time and it brings joy. It brings, it just makes it, makes pleasantness in there. And this is one of the reasons that we need to learn to, to just listen a lot more and, and speak a lot less. And sometimes, you know, people will go to counseling and and the psychologist or the counselor will say nothing and, and you know the person just talks their way through a problem and the counselor just ask a question here or there to direct the kind of direct them a little bit and they walk away thinking that counselor is the smartest person in the world all and you made the answer you made the decision those are the best counselors who kind of just walk you through you making your own decision they haven't told you to do anything you have just you spoke it out, you listen to yourself, and then you kind of, and they just kind of guide you in some of it a little bit, and then you come up with your own answer. Kind of irritating if you're paying big money. It's very irritating when you pay lots of money. <laughs> yeah. But you don't usually walk away thinking oh, that you no. did it. Because you walk away, you went, in, you went in confused, and you walk out with an answer, and if they're a good counselor, you did the you did the answer yourself. They weren't telling you go on and do these five steps, and you're okay. You kind of, you know, you know, by how do you feel or what do you think about that? And then you know, the more you think about it, the more you talk it through, you come up with your own answer a lot of times. My doctor, are you? And how does that make you feel? Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to get you to work your way through your problem without telling you. She told me, he told me that, I got, you know, mine is, do you feel trapped in chloride? Do I feel trapped? Let me think, yes, I do. I feel like I'm trapped here, you know? I've been here 20 years. I had six running tarps when I moved here, and I don't have any. And it's like, you know, yeah, I feel trapped. And they said, what are you going to do with your girlfriend? And, and that's a weird question for him to ask. What am I plural? plural huh? I, <laughs> well, I going to do with my girlfriend or friend? I, I said, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. But the main thing, do you feel trapped? And so I have to answer my own, like you said, answer your own problem. You know, he, he directs it that way. Do you feel trapped? What are you going to do about it? But, but this is something that God is saying to us. You know, the counselors will bring us to a conclusion. And no counselor, any, no counselor anywhere wants to be the one that gives you the answer because then when you, if it fails, you blame them. They want it to be your 
your your idea, your thought, your direction. Uh, if they think it's a bad one, then they can go, are you sure that that's a good good conclusion? That's what counselors are supposed to do. And this is something that, you know, even as pastors, we want to help people follow God's will, but it has to be their the individual's decision, not the pastor's decision, because otherwise they just come back and say, you told me to do this, and, you know, you, you know, I want to, I'll tell you what God says about it, then you have to decide what you want to do with it. And that's the important thing about this. Because otherwise, you know, there are people that get accused of being controlling. Even counselors and psychologists get accused of being controlling because they lead too much and, and kind of push into a, into a decision. And pastors get this quite often, you know, because they step over the boundaries of what it is. I mean, we teach God's word and we kind of we want to work with people and say, well, how are you applying God's word? What does this mean to you? And it's very important. The counselor, a good counselor, is just giving advice from what they know and drawing should draw from you where you want to go. And that's why I said when I talk to people, what would you do in this situation? I listen to what they would do, knowing what I was planning to do. But if I hear something that is critical, then I'm going to go. Well, now I need to reevaluate where I was at, what I was going to do. And it's very critical because we need to learn to be able to walk in God's word, listen to his counsel, listen to, to what we should do, and then make decisions. Uh, when I was in management, I taught lots of people to be managers. And my qu first question, anytime something went wrong, is why did you make the decision that you made leading into the problem? And, my, and then I told them the worst thing they could tell me is I don't know, I don't know why I did it. Because I can't work on I don't know. But if you told me why you did it, I could tell we could work on how to make better decisions. And that is important for us in anything that we do. Why did you do what you did? Then you can look back at, okay, well, I did this and this is why and it didn't seem to work. And then you can maybe change the the why and make a better decision the next time. And that's the important thing. And this is why counselors ask you the big question. How does that make you feel? Or you know, they might go, well, how did you get, you know, how did you get there in the first place? You know, what decisions led you to this? And what they're basically asking you is, why did you make, why did you do the things that led you to this? And once you know the whys, then we can try to, you know, then, then you can sit down and try to make better decisions or at least avoid the bad, bad one. You know, I think about people who make, you know, Especially women, they keep getting with the wrong guy all the time, same and same mistakes. mistake every oh, time. Yeah. I did a study on the on the brain of the why. Just the word why makes something click in our brains. You know, a question mark why, and it makes your brain start moving the gears and thinking of mm -hmm. why of this and that. But that's actually a, something in our brain is why the word why is uh, what they use a lot to click that make your gears to start moving in your brain. Well, any qu the why question, it triggers a lot of different thought patterns. It's not a yes That's or no. It. It's yeah. not a, yeah. It's not a you know, when did you do this? Well, it was yesterday. I mean, why, why triggers a lot of thought problems, processes, because it, it makes you analyze. Exactly. So your synapses will kick off because of it. Uh, it, you know, and that's what they tell you. The best thing, they, you know, is it yes or no questions. I mean, yes or no questions. People don't get engaged with. You know, you know, did you did you like that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Elaborate. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's that it would be true. But you know, this idea that people 
a word spoken in due season. The right word at the right time. Sometimes it can be the right word at the wrong time and it causes problems. And this is usually in, when you're in, in a stressful situation or a, or a fight. You may say something that's true and correct, oh, yeah. but the timing was terrible. Yeah. The person's mad at you, they're not listening at you, and all you've done is say that, you know, by telling them the truth, is you kind of stuck a knife in them saying, you know, you did wrong. And so due season is, is important on there, you know, spoken in due season. Uh, and this is very important. This is one of the reasons I keep teaching us, you know, our job is not to sit there and defend ourselves. God will defend us because when somebody's mad at us and they're, and they're trying to attack us verbally, you know, not physically necessarily, but verbally, you know, to start trying to ra be rational with that person does not usually work. So it takes God to set up the situations, put the right people in there to, to bring them back to where they're supposed to be, and just let God be our defense. Because when we start trying to defend ourselves in the middle of a battle, it very rarely works. Because somebody's just not listening. And that's why when you're trained to work with customers, you're not trying to tell the customer that they're wrong because whether they're wrong or right doesn't matter because they feel at that moment that they're right. Yeah. And they could be totally wrong. And I've dealt with customers and, and been nice to them and tried to help them out. And then I'd have people, as soon as they walk out the, out the door, you know, or leave the, leave the area, the people behind them, how could you put up with that person? And, you know, they were so irrational. And, or they'd even start laughing at times, you know, because of the way that person represented themselves. And it's like, well, you just, you have to be nice to them and you, and you, and you do that. It used to be customer service, whether a customer was wrong or right, they were always right. Yeah, that's a figure of speech. A customer yeah. was always right. Unless I know my mother trained me as a waitress, and she said, I don't care what your problems are. You come in with a smile, and whatever you come against that day, they're always right. Yeah. You know? But in the police business, the customer's always wrong. <laughs> no, out. not necessarily. Not if they're a good officer. I mean, if they arrest somebody, the customer is wrong. Well, no, it's just that they've committed a crime. And even then, they, a professional police officer will treat them with respect and honor. Oh, and, yeah, right. Uh, even, you know, because otherwise you're going to harm them. Because if you, you start getting in the wrong thought, they're going to be wrong. Uh, but, you know, I used to teach people that the customer is always right. <laughs> and then the corollary of that, if the customer's wrong, refer to the first, refer, refer to the first rule. The customer's always right. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that, and it's very important to be able to deal with people in that kind of a style a lot of times, because when they're angry, when they're upset, trying to trying to point out why they're why they're irrational isn't going to work. Uh, if somebody's mad at us because we're a Christian and we lived Christ in front of them, they might be mad at us. And it's Jesus said the people are going to hate you because they hated me. And it's an automatic. We need to we need to understand these kind of things because the world is evil and we are sinners in the core of our being so we will tend to be evil if we're not having Christ overrule our lifestyle and the, the thing I've taught people over and over if I expect people to be nice and kind and Christian like I'm going to be disappointed more often than not and when dealing with Christians I might get some people who are nice and kind maybe even most of the time but they still have a sin nature and they will have a point where they're going to disappoint me or 
do something that's not Christ-like. And if I'm expecting them always to be perfect, I'm going to be very disappointed. I've talked with various people at times who think that just because they're Christian, they're supposed to be nice and kind all the time. And when they're not, they get upset. And it's like, you can't. You know, they're, they're humans. And when you're dealing with the world, it's a rarity to get nice and kind from the world. And if you do, praise God, because that person's a, an unusual person. But you expect, you should expect that they're going to do the wrong things because that is who we are at our core. And this is why when we, we see the foundation of our country, they based it upon the idea that human beings were going to destroy the government because they know human beings were basically bad and that will continue to work its way down. And our world today tells us that we are basically good. And it's amazing when you talk to these crazy nuts because I, I went to college and, and they kept bringing up all these different things that man is basically good and if you just leave him alone, he'll do good things. And that's what people are taught in college. Dumbest thing you, because you ask them, well, how do people learn bad things? It goes, and their answer is, it's the rules that are placed on them. If there weren't rules, it wouldn't be bad because there would be no rules to break. And I'm going, that is dumb. <laughs> I've raised kids, and I go, my kids do things that are wrong. Oh, that's because you put rules on them. You told them there are things they couldn't do. Okay, so if I didn't put rules on them, you're telling me they'd be perfect kids. I'd love to see some parent try that. You know, uh, not to put rules on their kids, you know, ever. The kid probably would be dead within, yeah. you know, before the kid got very old. And, but it's amazing that the world tries to tell us that we're good, that we have taught people to be bad. And I can tell you, I never taught any of my kids to be bad. I gave them rules and they disobeyed those rules. And not because I told them to disobey the rules. They just, because they're sinners, they disobeyed the rules. And we are the same way. We are sinners. We disobey rules all the time. You know, whether there's a big or small in our mind, we will disobey rules. And because that's who we are. And I freely admit, you know, if somebody gives me a rule, I'm inclined to want to break that rule just because somebody told me I couldn't do it. And unless there's a good reason behind it. And unfortunately, sometimes we break rules that we don't think there's a good reason behind, and there may have been a good reason behind it, and yet, because we didn't see it, we just said, that's ah, not important. And this is why it's important for us to understand God's picture of us. God knows that we're going to do wrong. And that's why he tells us that our flesh needs to be crucified and he needs to reign in us because he knows that our tendency in the flesh is to disobey. And it doesn't matter who you are. Everybody's tendency is to disobey. Some people have greater discipline than others to, to obey because, they're, you know, because of who, they're, who their makeup. Some are very obstinate. They don't, they don't obey anything unless they're forced to obey. Uh, but it is critical that we understand that the human nature is that we are sinners. And this will help us when we deal with other, other people, especially other Christians. Because if we think a Christian is going to be nice and kind, number one, we should know better because we aren't nice and kind 100% of the time. But we shouldn't expect others to be nice and kind 100% of the time. And yet, so often we do. 
so often we do expect that you know all my all my Christian friends are going to be nice and kind to me all the time. It's not going to matter what I do to them; they're going to be nice and kind to me in spite of it. The cycle you're talking about, you talked about before, just but we know that they're going to be sinners, and just like I'm a sinner, I make mistakes, and I know I make mistakes, and I'm willing to apologize for the mistakes I make, and and when I'm sometimes I make things without even knowing it. Yeah. And sometimes if you talk to somebody and they're distracted or busy and then they get gruff with you and all of a sudden it's like, oh, they don't love me anymore. Look what they just did. Well, no, you interrupted them while they were doing something. You know, and, uh, you know, so you've got to be so careful. You know, we, we do things, oftentimes we do things wrong without even intending to. We just do. The tone comes across your, you know, you know, your, the way you speak to somebody and, and somebody takes it you know, a hundred times worse than you, than you, you know, you did it unintentional and they add, they multiply it by a hundred times and all of a sudden you're the, the big bad guy that just, you know, <laughs> ruined their whole day. Uh, and so we've got to be careful on these. The way of life is above to the wise that he may depart from hell beneath. The way of life, God's way of living. And it says, is above is above to the wise. God's ways are always greater than our ways. And if we look to him, we will walk above most everything that's going on. And when, when people speak angry or, or, or bad to me or to us, if we're looking at God's way of life, we're going to look and say, okay, I'm going to walk above this. I'm not, you know, we call it a lot of times the, the old state, uh, statement, taking the high ground. Not responding to somebody's negative, negative response. Not getting down in the mud with them to argue over the, over the points. And it's really critical for us, even if they're wrong, for us to dig down and, and, and wrestle with them in their mud is not going to be productive. It is let God be our defense and be able to pull back and say, okay, God, it's, I'm just going to hide in your shelter and you deal with this. Because eventually the truth wins out. The truth will always come out. And when people are gossiping about other people and making, making things hard about them, you're better off just letting God deal with it and letting the truth come out when it comes out. Because it always will. It will always come out. And you may feel like you've been damaged in the, in the process for a period of time, but the truth will come out in the long run. And God will make sure that it comes out. As long as you're not getting yourself mixed up in it and trying to defend yourself, he'll bring out the truth. Because if you start attacking the person who's gossiping, all you're doing is making it look like it's real. If you try to set the record straight, then people look at you and, you know, what's, what's the saying? You know, well, there's smoke, there's fire, or you, or you protest too much, so there must be truth, truth in there. You're better off just letting yourself stay silent let God bring the truth out. And the amazing thing is, most of the time, others will come to your defense. Others will come to, to the defense and saying, well, that just doesn't sound like that person. Or, you know, are you sure that you're giving the facts right? You know, and they start calling that person into question. But it's not you that does it. And you're walking the way that God wants. You're walking above and beyond where, you know, where, where people are at. You're, you're looking and saying, God, I want to live your lifestyle. Jesus loved the people. Did that mean he never said anything harsh about those who deserved it? No. You look at how he dealt with the Pharisees and scribes. 
he said this style of living. He didn't attack them personally, but their style. And the same thing that we can do. You know, this is not the right way to live. You know, we're we're going to be called, and you know, when we stand for God, we have morals, we have absolutes. When we stand for God, people are going to not like it. They're not going to like the fact that we call sin a sin. And we've talked about it uh, many times, you know, that Christians may have this comment that we say, we love the sinner, but not the sin. And, and we've talked about this. The world can't separate the two. Because the world says you, you, you act the way you are. And we say, no, we are sinners. And sin is the action that we do. And we can separate the two. And this is why we know that when we walk and we make a sin, we know that we're not that sin. And it's very important for us to be able to separate the two. Because otherwise, we're not going to love anybody. If we can't separate the action from the person, we're not going to love anybody. But the world has no, they have no sinner, you know, they have no sense. Who, what you do is what you are. And that they, have, they can't comprehend the whole idea of splitting the two up. The actions and who the person is. Because they just, they don't have that capacity because there's no sin or sinner in their mind. And therefore, they can't separate the two. And this is why we walk the way of life. And we depart from hell below, it says. And, we, and it takes us out of the troubles. It takes us out. We live God's way. We, we start making good decisions. And I hope you've noticed that as you make good decisions, everything seems to start walking in its place because that's part of the sowing and reaping. We usually think of sowing and reaping in a negative sense. I do, I do this bad thing and I get, I get punished for it. There's sowing and reaping on the good side, too. When I'm doing the right things, there's a good reaping that comes back from the good, from the good seed that's sown. Uh, you don't lie. You don't steal. You don't cheat. And then people start saying, okay, this person's somebody I can trust. They're reputable. I want to be around them. They're, I don't want to be, you know, if you get the person who's doing the wrong, they don't want to be around you. They don't, they don't want to see you. But... The laws of sowing and reaping that God puts in place are for good and for bad. And so we want to we sow good seed. We want to be kind. We want to be nice to people. And then we watch people's attitudes change toward us. And I've said this over and over. I've seen more people's lives changed by giving them God's grace than trying to pile law upon them. Because I know that law doesn't work because it doesn't work for me. If somebody says, well, you, this Bible says this, and you've got to do this. If God hasn't convicted me of that, you're telling me that it's not going to encourage me to, to do it. Now, I will read the God's Word, and I will take that, you know, and I will take it and store it because I've been around long enough. But the law is not going to encourage me to be obedient. But by God's grace, I have made many changes as I've read God's Word and said, well, I, mean, I probably should do that. And to give grace, to give them room to be able to fail before God. God says, who are you to judge his servants? And we want to be very careful that we don't judge his other servants because, I mean, if I wanted to do that, I've been walking with God for 44 years and I've come a long ways. I could judge everyone. Why aren't you where I'm at? Well, because you haven't gone 44 years in walking with God, possibly. You haven't studied his word for 44 years the way I have. And I still have lots of problems, and I've been following him for 44 years in his word. And somebody can come along and say, well, why aren't you where I'm at? Because I haven't got there yet. You know, 
And this is what's critical. It's not that we don't treat, you know, read his word. It's not even that we challenge each other, don't challenge each other to step more into God's word. But to judge somebody because they're not there, we don't want to do that. Um, because they need to grow in Christ. Now, if I see somebody and they're not growing at all, apparently I'm going to ask them, you know, I might ask them, well, where have you been growing? Tell me about how you're growing in Christ. And challenge them, you know, are you growing? Because that's important. It is important to grow. If, and my sermon at the beginning of every new year pretty much is that kind of, where are you? Are you further along today than you are a year ago? Look back and say, am I growing? Because if we're not growing, we do have a problem. And I have, and I have been places, and I know Christians who don't seem to grow. They're, uh, they're just happy staying where they're at, and they're never challenged. They're not getting into God's Word. And you know, they look back over their life and say, wow, I haven't learned anything. I haven't gone forward with God. And then the more they get into God's Word, the more they grow, and the faster they grow. And... And when I'm hearing it a lot from people, as I'm encouraging people to read the Bible and listen, you know, they're saying I've learned more in a year than I've learned all my years of walking with God. And that to me is a, I'm glad on one side, but it's a very sad statement to me for somebody who's walked with God for a long time, what happened to those other years. And I'm glad that they're, they're growing now, but you know, I'm very sad about what happened in the past. It, it, it bothers me. And like I said, I learned this lesson in my 30s when I was assigned to teach a senior adult men's class. And it scared me to death getting ready to talk to guys that had been walking with God for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And then I talked to them and found out these guys don't know anything more than these 20-somethings that I was teaching most of the time. And it was a shock to me. It was a real shock to me because I had spent all my life in God's Word and learning. And to find out that other people weren't doing that you know, it was a very eye-opening experience, but it was very shocking. Uh, and so my encouragement for everybody is learn. Spend time in God's Word. Learn it. Any comments before we go on? I'll go. All right. Verse 25, The Lord will destroy the house of the pride, but he will establish the border of the wicked. And this is kind of an interesting thing. God works in the lives of people. Now, my Bible Wait says widow, not wicked. Widow. Did I say wicked? Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Widow. I just I can't read it. Well, the next line down in mine has a wicked on it, so I just I, I must my yeah, mind must have my, my my eyes must have gone down. You are right. It's supposed to say widow. He does not establish the wicked. Let's get that out of the way. He does not establish the wicked. <laughs> the idea of this one is that God does not let flesh exalt itself in front of him. If you want to say that I've done anything, God is going to say, well, let me show you what your, what your pride is going to accomplish. And he will destroy it. He will, he will tear it down. Uh, the widow or the, the humble is another place where it says he exalts the humble. He exalts the widow. He establishes us. When we are dependent on him, he establishes us. He protects us. And this is very important for us to be able to get that knowledge of how am I standing before God? Do I, am I living in Him or am I living in my own flesh? And we've, we've probably all know and seen people who are telling you all about what they've done. You know, look what I have done. And this is very important for us to understand that 
when God is working through us, it's not me doing it. If we were to build this church into two or three, four or five hundred people, it wouldn't be me who did it. It would be God who did it. And I would love to see us get a bigger church, you know, because there's more we could do with a bigger church. But if God's going to keep us this small, then he keeps us this small for a reason. There's also an intimacy in a small church. And that is a good thing also. You know, if it was a very large church, sometimes it's hard to get to the pastor of a small church. Uh, you know, a big church, excuse me. Because the pastor's busy doing so many things and, and dealing with so many people. Uh, I used to go to a church of 1,200 people and try to make an appointment with the head pastor was you know, almost impossible. But So there's an advantages, there's disadvantages and advantages of both sides. And while we have a small church, I'll take full advantage of being able to be intimately involved with everybody who wants to have a close tie with learning. Because if he builds the church, then that's going to be harder. Because you can really only minister to so many people. Jesus spent his whole life ministering to 12 men, primarily. There were hundreds around him, and he taught hundreds and thousands of people, but he had poured all of his life into 12. And by his example, it pretty much tells me that that's probably about the most that somebody can handle at one time to really minister to. And, you know, we want to be careful about that. We don't want to stretch it out. All right, verse 26. We're going to read a few verses again. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the, womb, the words of the pure are pleasant words. He that is greedy of gain troubles his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. The heart of the righteous studies to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report makes the bones fat. The ear that hears the reproof of life abides among the wise. He that refuses instruction despises his own soul. But he that heareth reproof gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. All right. Verse 26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. And I think about this. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to God. They're very thoughts. Yeah. The very thoughts when you're thinking wickedness you know, is, is an abomination. And that's a strong word. Abomination is a very strong word for what it's talking about, that God really is, you know, wants to get sick. An abomination really is something that literally means that you want to get sick. You come across something that is just sickening to you. Yeah. Our problem most of the time is that we don't see wickedness in this same light. We don't see wickedness and sin as an abomination. There's even a fascination with it sometimes. You know, if we think about some of the movies and shows that we might watch and, and, and the stuff that is taught during those, those movies, you know, uh, these people go on murder, murder sprees or, or even some of the shows that are, you know, are action-based where the, where the good guy is doing it for the right reasons, but it's all violence. That's not God's way of getting things accomplished usually. And now, I'm not saying it's 100% wrong because he told the children of Israel to go into the Canaan and kill everyone. Why? Because they'd had over 400 years of sin and they weren't going to repent, so God said, get rid of them. 
Very rare is that his answer, though. Uh, God did it in the days of Noah. Man got so evil that he sent this, the, the, the flood to kill everyone. In the Revelation, it's going to be that everything is so bad that God says, we're just going to destroy everything. And, you know, we're going to take those who have you know, repented and we're going to go forward, but he's going to destroy the world. So there is a place for that kind of action as long as God is directing it and there's been plenty of chance for uh, repentance. But we would have to be very careful to make sure that we heard that it was God's idea to do. And yet we fill our minds with this, uh, that the ends justify the means. And that's the world's way of doing it. As long as I get a good result, it doesn't matter how I get there. And God's saying, no, I have a way for you to live. I have a way for you to live. Don't, don't go do wrong things just because you're trying to get to a good result. And this is very important for us to understand. Following God's way of doing things always. And it says that, uh, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. And it's very much true that we want to be around people who speak those pleasant words because it comes out of their heart. We know their sincerity about it. Uh, the last thing you ever want to have to do is say things that are insincere. Yeah. I had somebody do that one time to me. They're going, I love what you're doing for the church. And the person didn't even know me. You know, and I'm going, what is it that I've been doing? <laughs> yeah. Now, I knew what I was doing and, I, and all of that. But you know, the, this person who didn't know me and didn't know what I was doing, their words did not mean anything to me. It's like, okay, you know, what do you know about me? You know, don't, don't be doing this false flattery stuff because I don't, I'm, I don't buy into it. And nobody does. To have somebody says, I love what you did when you did this is one thing. But to just say, you know, you're a really nice person and they don't know you, that doesn't, yeah. doesn't mean a whole lot. And the pure will speak pleasant words. They will be good words. They will be words that bring, bring you up. He that is greedy of gain troubles his house, but he that hates gifts shall live. This is a person who will do anything to get, get gain. They're greedy for it. They're going to sell out everything. I mean, and you know, we've all seen or heard of it. I was a workaholic in my early days of, you know, of my marriage, and, and just as soon be at work as not as home. But, I've, but I had the right reason. I wanted to help my family. I hurt my family quite a bit, but I felt like I was doing what I needed to to support my family, but they got hurt in the process. People who will do anything for gain hurt their family, hurt the reputation of their family, hurt the hurt their lifestyle with their family, you know, destroy their family in the long run. And this is what he says, it troubles your house. If you're greedy for gain, you're going to trouble your house. Because most people who are greedy for gain are going to do anything. Whether it's good or bad, they'll steal, they'll lie, they'll cheat. Uh, I've heard different people will say, well, you know, it's all just business. You know, you, know you, you, you stretch the truth to advertise something. And advertising usually stretches the truth, and I call it lying. You know, they'll call it stretching the truth. But, you know, they'll tell you all about how, how it is all good. And all so they can make their sale. Salesmen oftentimes will do this. They'll, you know, they'll flatter, uh, you know, you, you listen to, you know, they'll flatter you up, make you feel good, so you're going to buy whatever it is that they're, you know, that they're selling. And 
God is saying, speak truthfully. Speak truthfully because he wants to see people rewarded, not, not torn down. And it, you know, but he that hates gifts, bribes, in this case, shall live. And the problem that we have is so many people want, you know, want the what, what's in it for me attitude. Uh, you know, they'll do anything as long as there's something in it for them. <laughs> and this is not a good place to be. And this is when we witness for Jesus, we, sell, we work for Jesus. It's not for what's good for me, it's what's good for God's kingdom. And that's why I say oftentimes, better sometimes is just be quiet, let, you know, because I shouldn't have a reputation that I'm worried about. You know, do I want to do things to destroy my reputation? No, but am I worried about others saying things that don't match my reputation? No, I'm not, because God will, the, God will bring the truth out, and it's very important for us to be that way. We don't take the bribes. We're not looking at what's good for me. We're looking for what's good for God's kingdom. And sometimes that may be that people get to slander me and, and make, say things or even crucify or, or kill the Christians. Why? Because God says that that testimony wins out. Yeah. And then, and like I shared a couple Sundays ago, you know, the, the Coptic Christians that were killed by ISIS. You now, is it good that they died? Absolutely not. Was it good that they did it? No. But you know, the greatest thing was they died while praying, and that was what people saw and have heard. They saw these 20 people praying to God as they're being killed. That brings a testimony out for God. They get to go to before God and get the crown of the martyr and everything, but they they did it and they lifted God up high. And we need to be in a place where is everything we do lift God up high. When we are attacked, when we're made fun of, when we're when we're killed, are we lifting God up? Are we you know, and this is the key to living according to his way. If I am crucified, I don't have anything to worry about because it's God who's being condemned or, or, or rejected because I've been killed. I, my flesh has been killed. And we want to be able to let him lift us up. I just had a thought last night, a kind of a dreamy thing. It was that America, we always have to have an enemy. I mean, we always have to have a war going on or something going on to keep the enemy. So now it's ISIS or, or something, and it's usually the CIA or somebody, U.S. is behind it, you know, you know that. And I see, gosh, isn't that sad? Because we need to sell more weaponry. We will, we'll just make up an enemy. So now we have an enemy with ISIS because they martyred these poor 20 missionaries, you know. Well, ISIS is an enemy, but it's... Yeah. And they weren't missionaries. They were, they were, they were they, seasonal workers. Yeah. Oh, were they? They weren't yeah, They were people living in that country. Oh. Coptic Christians living in that Christian. The Pope mm -hmm. came up and said they martyred for Jesus. Yeah. There's a difference between being a missionary and a martyr. Yeah, big difference between those. A missionary goes to a country. Yeah. Martyrs get killed for Jesus. Or for God. But martyrs oftentimes live in a place where they're martyred, so it's, it's not necessarily a missionary. But we are also all missionaries in one sense, too, if we're yeah, lifting, sure. God, lifting God up. No, these, these individuals were living in that country and were just... Oh, okay. They weren't foreigners in that country trying to witness. So... The heart of the righteous studies to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 
And this is the studies is really interesting because it really means to muse or meditate. Uh, so the the right the heart of the righteous thinks about what they're going to say, and then speaks. The mouth of the wicked person just pours out evil. They just say the first thing that pops in their head, and then keeps talking, keeps talking about what it is that's in their in you know in their head, and and if it's coming from their head, it's going to be evil because it's coming from the flesh, and so therefore their advice usually isn't that good. And so the idea on this is. Think before you speak, is how we would say this type of statement. Uh, and that shows a righteousness in it, because if you're thinking about what you're saying, and you're a Christian trying to follow God, then you should be coming into, what would God say in this? What is the biblical answer to this? And this is critical, because you know, the one thing I've told many people in this room, even as they tell me about things, is we don't need to talk about this person or that person, or you know, we don't want to say evil about them. And we want to keep coming back to this. God's answer is keep silent. Keep silent about some of the things. Uh, he doesn't want us doing foolish jesting and, and, and silliness. Because he tells us that we will give an account for every idle word we speak. Which would give us, should give us a pause right there not to be just pouring, pouring stuff out of our mouth. Because usually it'll be evil. It'll be... It'll be coarse. It'll be, you know, something that shouldn't be said. So we need to really be thinking and stopping to think. You know, there's an old saying that we, God gave us uh, two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should listen twice as much as we speak. And this is basically what this verse is saying. Think. Listen. Know what, know what you're saying. Make sure that it fits with God's, God's way before you speak. And... I'm guilty of it myself. I'll say things that I didn't think of, think about. Um, so I try as hard as possible to think before I speak. But every once in a while, I will speak before I think and then go, well, that was a dumb thing to say. Now, God, forgive me. And then I have to go to the person and say, forgive me. That was the wrong advice, bad, 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 thing, you know, bad things to do. And it says, the heart of the righteous meditates the answer before answering. You know, and I challenge each one of us, let's learn to do more and more, thinking before we speak, looking to say, is this, am what I'm, is what I'm getting ready to say matching God's thoughts? And as long as you take a moment, a lot of times you won't say it, because you know, it doesn't make sense. Or, yes, God, this is something you want to have said. And very important that we get there, because we don't want to have somebody come back and say, you know, boy, you just talk foolishness all the time. And we all know that there are people out there that talk foolishness a lot of times. And God is saying, watch. Watch what you say. Muse about it. Think about it. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. We are righteous because we have Jesus Christ in us. He has made us righteous. He hears our prayers. But he does not come close to the wicked. I mean, he's, he holds them off. And doesn't mean that he doesn't hear what they say. When they ask for his forgiveness, he's going to hear it. When they say, I need you and God come into my heart and save me, he hears that. But he may or may not hear any other prayer that they do. And there's a lot, lot of debate on whether God hears their, their, the wicked's prayer. But I would say based on most of the verses in the Bible, 
He's not hearing their prayers. If they're true prayers asking for his help, he may give them ear and give them the direction. But if they're truly living a wicked lifestyle, he's not listening to what they're saying. He's not helping them you know, get over their problems that they created of their own nature. Uh, but when we're trying to live for him, he's going to help. He's going to listen. He's going to hear. He's going to be near. And by being near, he'll be whispering into our ear, no, you don't want to go that way. You're not going to do that. Uh, but the wicked just aren't listening. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And so he doesn't speak to you know, I don't think he speaks to most of them. Does he protect the wicked? If he's got a plan that says they're going to be protected, he's going to protect them. He's not, you know, if they're going to get saved at some point in their life, he's going to keep them alive. And I've talked to many people who have said, Man, I can think back at all these times I should have been dead before I became a Christian and God protected me. My dad had a testimony of an axe head coming off of it and coming out of his head and he watched it veer off when there was no reason for it to, to veer off. You know, but he will protect us if he needs to protect us, knowing that we're going to be saved. Maybe even protect them to try to get them to the point. Who knows? But it says that he doesn't, he's far from them that are wicked. Doesn't mean he doesn't do anything for them, but his, he's just going to be, you're over there, I'm over here. And how often do we make the decision, God, you're over here, I'm going this way, are you coming with me? And God says, no, I'm over here, you come to me. You know, God wants us to come to him, not wherever we want to go and expect him to go with us. We can get far from him. And then the old adage goes is, it's not God who moved, it's us. We decided to go off. And God's saying, hey, I'm over here, you know, are you coming back? You know, maybe you've done that with your kids at some time. You know, the kids are really wanting to go something, and you're going this way, and they're looking back like, you coming? I go, no, we're going over here. You know, uh, you know as long as you're not getting in danger. <laughs> but, you know, no, we're going over here. I don't know where you're going, but I'm going over here. You know, and you don't do that with a baby, obviously, or a toddler. But, you know, teenagers, I've done that a lot with the teenagers. You can make your own decisions. You're going to have to be accountable for it, but it's a bad decision. And I've shared that with my second oldest son. You know, he went out on his very first date with a girl that wasn't a Christian. I'm going, you shouldn't be going out on this date with this person. And, you know, famous last words, it's not like we're going to get married. And a few years later, they were married. Uh, children? Huh? Children. They don't have any children yet, no. Uh, but, you know, it was the idea of, okay, you're 16 years old. I, can, I could probably tell you not to, but it's probably not going to work for me to tell you not to go on this date. And, you know, but I told him, Bible tells you that, you know, says it's a bad decision. You shouldn't be doing this. You're, you're making your decision now between God and you. But People are wicked enough. They do what you tell them not to do. They do the reverse well, psychology sometimes. You have to do it the opposite. Go out with that person. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone that route. But he was too much wanting that. So oh. uh, that was not the way to go. The best thing was to leave it in God's hands. Emotions and lust. The best thing was to leave it in God's hands. And sometimes, you know, there is a place where it has to be freedom. You know, I talk to people in the church. There's no way I'm going to tell people in the church you can't do this because, like you say, normally they would just go ahead and do it anyway because they're planning to. Exactly. I'll say this is what God says. You, you now your answer is between you and God. Um, my oldest son, one time I told him, you know, because he was being disobedient. I'm going, okay, I'm, I don't know how to make this, fix this, and so I'm going to put you into God's hands. 
told me many years later that that statement scared the daylights out of him because he was more worried about God's hands than my hands, which I was that he would be. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there are times when you've done your job, you've trained somebody up, you know, especially our kids, we've trained them up to do right and wrong, we've done the best we can to bring them to God, and we just let them make their decisions and say, okay, it's between you and God, and now you've got to deal with God. And because they're going to make decisions. And we need to give our teenagers that kind of room to make mistakes while we're still there to, to help them pick up the pieces so that they can learn how to be making good decisions as an adult. Uh, I've seen people that try to control their teenagers, you know, and if you try to go too much control, you're going to, you know, not preparing them for adulthood. And as our kids get older and older, we give them more and more room to make decisions Knowing they're going to make some bad decisions, just because I make bad decisions, I know my kids are going to make bad decisions. I can try to guide it. I can try to help them with God's word. And the older they get, and the closer they get to, to being on their own, the more I have to let them make. I had to let them make their decisions, and then try to talk to them afterwards about the result of the decision. And so, but it's so important for us to be there. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and a good report makes the bones fat. This verse is kind of interesting because if you've got to look, do a little bit of study in what light means in the in the in the Old Testament to the Jews, the light is not referring to the sunlight. It's not referring to the to the the light. It refers to God's truth and His way of wanting things done, his doctrines. So the truth to the light is, uh, of the eyes rejoice the heart. God's truth will rejoice our heart. And I hope you've all been there many, many times. When God's word comes in and you've walked in it, you see and there's rejoicing. And every time I try to disobey God's rules, it doesn't work whether I fall into them or purposely do them, you know, there may be that momentary pleasure, but the consequences of it bring darkness. And we need to come back into the light and say, God, I need forgiveness. His light rejoices the heart. And it makes, and a good report makes the bones fat. And this is literally, in bones in this case, should not have been bones, but the essence of the person. It makes them really get built up. And I've, I've told everybody, I have this really weird picture of heaven, and I, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but I have this picture of heaven with people who have fed their spiritual bodies, being very plump and, and maybe even fat, and it would probably be a good thing to be fat in heaven with a spiritual body that's been really trained up. And those that get to heaven totally emaciated and never have never have done anything to their spiritual body. You know, and you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it's how I picture it, because God says we're to feed on his word, and his word feeds our spirit. And I picture this, I mean, this is something I picture that when we get to heaven, it'll be very clear who's been feeding their body and who has not been feeding the spiritual body. And it's my opinion, you know, take it for what it's worth, but I just, I have this picture I have this picture, and people go, well, there's nothing imperfect in heaven. I'm going, well, there's nothing 
nothing necessarily imperfect between a fat body or an emaciated body. It just have you ate or have you not? Uh, so it could all be just you know, not very imaginative, but that is something I picture. The ear that hears the reproof of life abides among the wise. And this hearing is, in, is to hear and obey. It's not just I heard words in my brain, but it is I heard them to obey them. It says, the ear that hears the reproof of life abides among the wise. And most of us don't like to be reproved. We don't like to be disciplined. But God says if we're his children, he's going to discipline us. And we need to be able to listen to that, that discipline and correct our life. Let that correction work. And for everybody in this room, everybody in this room's had a kid in their lifetime. You know, if you disciplined your kid, you expected your kid to respond to the discipline. You didn't expect them to go right back out and do the same thing that they had just been disciplined for. And God's the same way with us. He doesn't want to keep disciplining us for the same thing. When he disciplines us, he expects us to obey. Now, we are imperfect, and we do. You know, we might obey. You know, and usually when I discipline my kids, they would obey for a couple weeks or a month, and then they would disobey or fall into the same thing, and I'd have to re-discipline them. The idea wasn't to hurt them or make them you know, take fun away from them, but to let them learn that you don't do this. And you discipline them enough that eventually it became a lifestyle change to stay, you know. And it was initially made to stay out of trouble. And isn't that what we do sometimes with God? You know, God comes in, he disciplines us, and eventually we, are, we obey just for the reason of I don't want to be in trouble with God. I just don't want to disobey God and be, in, be disciplined, so I'm going to stop doing whatever it was I was doing. And that is really what discipline does. I get corrected and corrected and corrected. I get tired of being corrected, and I start living the way that I'm supposed to live. And that works the same way for God. He corrects us and corrects us and corrects us. You know, God, I'm getting a little tired of this. I think I'll stop doing. You know, God, either you stop disciplining me or I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing, and God doesn't stop disciplining. So we end up deciding to stop doing. And ideally, that should be after one time. But we all know that that's not what happens. <laughs> it didn't work with our kids that way. It didn't work with us on a physical level when we were growing up. And it's not going to work on the spiritual level. God disciplines multiple times. And then we finally say, you know, I'm, tired of, I'm tired of this discipline. I'm going to start doing it the right way. And that is where we want to come to is that we will hear and it divides and it brings life. And once we start obeying God, we, we're, we walk better. We, we start having a better time. He that refuses instruction despises his own soul, but he that heareth reproof gets understanding. And that's corollary of what we just talked about. If I'm not listening to him, I really despise my soul because when I start disobeying, bad things are going to happen. And I know they're going to happen. You know, I may not in the, the heat of the moment, I may not be consciously thinking about that bad things are going to happen, but usually right after it, and I start getting out of the out of the moment, I'm going, why did I do that? Why did I? Why didn't I tell the person the truth? Why didn't I admit that I had stolen that stuff? Why did I treat that person so bad? Why did I say that mean thing to that person? You know, we didn't think about it right in the middle of it because we were in the middle of the heat of the moment. Then afterwards, we're going, 
boy, was I really dumb. You know, and it basically, if you don't come to that conclusion, you're despising your soul because it's going to come back after you, at you anyway. And he that hears reproof gets understanding. As we get to where we listen, we, re we listen to the reproof. We don't re react to it. And we say, I just want to get that understanding. I want to acquire knowledge. I want to act in a way that's correct. I don't want to neglect it. Very important for us to be able to hear the reproof and respond. Whether it's from God directly, from a Christian brother or sister that's trying to help us, or from God's word, we want to be able to hear his correction and say, okay, God, I've got it. I've learned from this mistake. I'm not going to do it again. And hopefully we don't. And if it doesn't, God will say, send us the correction again and bring us back. And he'll correct again and he'll correct again. He is patient. And it's, I'm, I'm so thankful that God's patient because I'm not that patient. I expect obedience from, I expected obedience from my kids. I didn't, I didn't like having to correct them over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And yet God does that for us so many times where he just keeps correcting. The fear of the Lord it is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. When we fear God, when we're looking for him, he will bring instruction and wisdom. And his wisdom, we're talking about his wisdom. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense to us because it doesn't, you know, makes no physical sense. It makes the idea to let God be our defender is not something that defend that we would think of in our flesh. Our flesh says, "I'm going to go defend myself, and I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to make this person not say these things. I'm going to make this person correct these things." And God's saying, "Just back off." You know. Jesus went to the cross for our sins. That makes no sense to the human brain. To, to love somebody and to build them up and to edify them when they're doing, you know, when they're really mean and evil people does not make sense to God, not to make sense to us in the flesh and people. When you're nice to somebody who's being mean to you, it doesn't make sense to them. And it, but God is saying, you're going to follow my way. And then the last one, and before honor is humility. When God builds somebody, lifts somebody up, it is because they are humble. Not because they're saying, I deserve this, look at me. But because they're humble enough to be a servant. When God brings out leadership of people and makes them leaders, it's because they've learned to be humble. They're not trying to say, here am I, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm the greatest thing that's ever happened in your life. You know, look at me. That's not what God is wanting us to do. He's, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. He, he spoke with them. He was gentle with them. God's leaders are gentle. They're very kind. They, they know that they could fall just as easy as, as the people that they're working with, if not easier. And they want to be able to just be humble and do the little things and say, I'm going to just do what it takes to bring somebody. And we've all probably seen the arrogant leaders that, you know, it's like, well, who are you? Who do you think you are? And we've also seen those humble leaders. And, they, and there, there's an attraction to the humble leader that says, you know, I'm just here to do what I can. And God is saying, that is what we're looking for. All right, we made it to the end of the chapter finally. 
Any thoughts or comments before we close? Humility is a good thing. Humility is a very good thing. And it's very, very much against the flesh is desire, too. Yeah, people love to be noticed. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your care. We ask that you go with us and help us in all that we do. And, and give us many opportunities to share you with others. And, and we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen.